There's a lot of bad information out there about sex, fueled in part by socio-cultural framings of certain behaviors and by the way media portray particular sex acts. If you couple that with the fact that sex is something people are just uncomfortable talking about, it can be hard for an individual to find good information. Enter sex research, the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio is regular panelist John Baylor, chair of Miami Statistics Department. Richard Campbell of Media, Journalism, and Film is away today. Our guest today is Debbie Herbenick. Herbenick is director of the Center for Sexual Health Promotion and a professor at Indiana University, as well as a sexual health educator for the Kinsey Institute. She's also the author of numerous studies on sexual behavior and the author or co-author of a number of books, including Because It Feels Good, A Woman's Guide to Sexual Pleasure and Satisfaction, the I Love You More book, and the Corgasm Workout. Debbie, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I guess I'm just going to start off by asking you how sex research became your calling. Um, it became my calling because I didn't know anything about sex. <laughs> and I um, had taken a job as a research assistant at the Kinsey Institute right out of undergrad um, because I had a background in childhood and adolescent development. And they were doing a study at the time on child and adolescent sexual development. So I came, yeah, as a, as a newly minted um, undergrad to work on that, got there and thought, wow, um, everything I thought I knew was wrong and I didn't think I knew too much anyway, and this is a great place to learn. <laughs> so so what, what, when you started to, you know, this investigation, this new, this new area of research for you, what were some of the, the things that you had to learn to get up to speed to do these investigations? Well, you know, luckily I, I was, you know, a a very sort of junior research assistant on the project. So I was doing a lot of behind the scenes uh, kinds of things. So that exposed me to reading a lot of books. Um, the Kinsey Institute has a fantastic library and art collection. And I would sometimes use my lunch hours to volunteer in the collections and read letters to and from Alfred Kinsey. So I got a lot of background really on a cultural ignorance um, as well as how researchers were addressing that ignorance decades earlier. And then, of course, I was around people um, both at the Kinsey Institute and outside of the Institute at IU at Indiana University to see how people were answering those big questions. So, you know, the Kinsey Institute's actually very small, and there are probably 10 times as many sex researchers at IU outside of Kinsey compared to inside. So it's just a great place to be and to soak up information. You mentioned the fact that you felt like you didn't know a lot when you started working with Kinsey. And I think that that seems like something that comes up a lot in conversations about sex, you know, in a classroom space, outside of classroom spaces, that people just feel like they don't know as much as they would like. What do you think contributes to that? You know, we in the U.S., we have such a puritanical history about, you know, everything and that influences how we approach bodies and sexuality. So certainly in the United States, um, it's still common for many people to have not been raised with accurate words about their genitals. And I teach uh, college level human sexuality classes at IU. And in the first week or two, when we get to genital anatomy and I 
you know, say, okay, everybody take out some paper, work in groups. Um, before we, we start the lecture, we sort of do some diagram drawing. And I say, draw a diagram of a vulva and label these parts. And they all say, what's a vulva? Yeah. You know, and they're 18 and 20 and 24, and they feel some shame sometimes or embarrassment around not knowing that. And I tell them there's, you know, you should not feel ashamed or embarrassed about this because this is our culture, right? But at the same time, some of us are changing that. Um, and like my two-year-old knows what a vulva is. Um, so many of us are also raising them with accurate words. So, you know, we have that cultural shame. We have religious and family traditions. Um, and we happen to be a culture where people more easily talk about the sensational aspects of sex and yeah. the sexy ones. Um, we have endless images, you know, on Instagram and in movies and in porn. But it's really the the sort of more vulnerable and intimate and accurate conversations about sex that are that we're at a loss for. That sounds like a really hard problem to study. I mean, if, if there's cultural ignorance, there's probably inhibitions in terms of responding. So what are when how do you how do you study this? I mean, have there been changes in this the have there been trends in cultural ignorance the changes in this cultural ignorance over time? How how do you investigate these questions? Yeah, so I think it's actually easier to study if you have expertise and a background on it than many people think, right? So many people do think, wow, we're so embarrassed who would ever tell you about their sex lives. But what we find is those of us who, you know, have been trained and we we come equipped with like truly like a non-judgmental approach um, and we're very open and we're comfortable talking about these things but we actually find the opposite right that if you give people some confidence and comfort and they have a space to share with you what's going on in their lives or what they wonder about and they know it's this really safe space with somebody who's not going to judge them they just pour out um, with their stories and for many of them they will say I've never told anyone this before. I could never tell anyone this before. Um, and that, you know, and that gives them something. And so, you know, it ends up being, especially when we do those interview-based uh, studies, which isn't all of what we do, but it's some of what we do. I mean, I find it really satisfying in that regard too, because our participants seem to also get so much out of it. I know you were involved with a very large national survey. Could you talk a little bit about that? I know you just talked about doing these smaller, more intimate interviews, but maybe you could talk about what it's like to do this big national survey, right, in the U.S.? Absolutely, yeah. So I'm the lead investigator of what's called the National Survey of Sexual Health and Behavior, or the NSSHB. Um, and it's been going on for more than a decade, and we've done seven waves of data collection. So it's really the nation's only um, U.S. Nationally Representative Survey of Sex in the U.S. Um, there was one before us in the early 1990s um, that was very well done from um, from Chicago, um, University of Chicago, and um, and we've been very happy to to carry you know that torch along. So we look at things like trends in sexual behaviors, who's doing what, how, what types of sexual behaviors people find appealing or not appealing. Um, we look at relationships and marriages and intimacy and connection. We look at what people like about sex, um, orgasms, pleasure. So, you know, I could go on and on, but the point is, you know, we do these seven waves of data collection. The questions change every time. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely love digging into um, these changes and these feelings that people have. I think, you know, you asked about methods and in this case, what's nice about this is not only is it a nationally representative study, so it does its best to reflect the U.S. population, but um, 
because the data collection is internet-based, we also get around some challenges that we sometimes do have with face-to-face interviews is that sometimes there are certain topics that people will be more likely to um, reveal over internet-based surveys. What kind of response rates do you get for these types of surveys? Yeah, our response rates vary um, depending on how, <laughs> sort of how out there the topic is. Yeah, yeah, I was um, wondering. <laughs> but it's common for them to be like 55, 60%, That's... which is pretty common for these kinds of surveys. Yeah, yeah. I, is there anything over the more the more than a decade that you've been doing this that you have found surprising or particularly interesting that's that's emerged from all of this uh yeah um <laughs> that's, that's like a softball right uh, yeah. yeah lob into the net come on debbie slam at home <laughs> I, I mean i do think it's uh there are some things that that i find challenging right so i think we have seen some sexual behaviors becoming more aggressive in the oh. past decade oh. um that's hard for me to see especially as a parent with small oh. kids mm-hmm. and thinking you know uh, long term about maybe their adolescence or adulthood um, I see uh, we have some data on uh, the types of topics that are covered or not covered well in um, school-based oh. sexuality education. And considering we are still grappling in this country with particularly high rates of HIV acquisition among oh. um, teenagers and young adults, particularly who are gay and bisexual men or men having sex with men, um, we see almost no respondents saying that their schools talked to them about safer sex between two men mm-hmm. um, or safer sex between two women, which isn't as often linked to HIV, but is still important to people understanding yeah. their sexual lives. So, you know, we, we don't see much conversation about pleasure and sex education. So when sex education occurs at all, um, you know, adolescents and young adults generally say that what was covered well was uh, things like, um, you know, sexually transmitted infections, birth control, um, and abstinence, and not much beyond that. Mm-hmm. I, th- I thought your study was was really, really very interesting, and I, you did very complex methods using these probability sampling methods and doing appropriate weights to upweight the results to get to the population values. I thought that was was very, very nice. Uh, I was curious though about about some of the predictors of the behaviors. You know, so it's you you have these general estimates, but I I know that it's a much harder question to think about stratifying by by some by certain subgroups. I mean, I know that I've, I've seen some, you know, in some of your presentations, you talk about uh, where there's, where certain, certain education patterns result, you know, where you don't talk about sex or where sex is t- treated as abnormal in different parts of the country, you might see higher rates of sexually transmitted disease. Uh, so I, I'm just curious about predictors of the behavior. So to follow up on, on Rosemary's comment about interesting results, are there particularly interesting patterns that you've seen over time and interesting predictors of such patterns? Well, so we're, you know, every study, and we publish like a, you know, a couple dozen a year, um, is a little different. So we look at lots of different kinds of predictors. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't look as much at things like regional differences. Um, So in large part, because even though there are some regional things that are interesting, right, like in the U.S., if you look at any of the STI charts from the Centers Mm -hmm. for Disease Control, there's always a very well-defined trend in where the STIs and HIV are, which is the Bible Belt. Yep. Yep. Um, so they're like, so they're there. Um, we don't do a lot of regional things with things like sex education or even behavior, in part because a lot there's a lot of variability within those areas. Um, you know, so for example, where I live in Bloomington, Indiana, is enormously different than towns 20 or 30 minutes or an hour away. 
Um, so for me, even though I know there's a lot of people who do that type of work, especially in epidemiology, the regional stuff is a little less interesting to me. I tend to be really interested in people's um, maybe like the more proximal predictors. Sure, so things sure. like the person that they're having sex with. Um, I care about how they feel about that person. Yeah. So oh. um, as an example, I think that, you know, we found in one study that um, women were, were more likely to use a condom with somebody who either they didn't love or they weren't sure they loved or they weren't sure how that person felt about them. Hmm. So, you know, I think that's like a such an adaptive behavior, right? You're not sure about these feelings or you're pretty sure they don't have strong positive feelings for you. So you're not going to use a condom and or so you are going to use a condom. And that's a, you know, that's a very wise thing to do. So those, yeah, those really proximal behaviors about like where you had sex, who the person was feelings. Yeah. That, that's sort of my, my bag. So how do you, if someone wants to do this kind of research, right, how would you suggest they sort of go about their education or training? Because you, you know, again, do the smaller scale sort of more personal interviews. You do that. You're managing this big survey. Um, someone who wants to go into this field, what do they need to be thinking about to be prepared to do, to do this work? I mean, just get good training, right? So, and there's there's lots of possibilities for that. There are more and more sex researchers um, all over the world all the time. So there are more people available to you. Um, most schools don't have, you know, dozens and dozens of sex researchers like right. we do at <laughs> University. Um, but there are a few programs and ours, one of them um, that now have like online graduate certificates. So we have a graduate certificate in sexual and reproductive health. And we now have some students who live in areas where there really aren't local sex researchers or educators, and maybe they want to work at a local clinic as an educator, or they want to go into research, um, so they can get that. And there, are, you know, the University of Michigan and University of Minnesota also have some online opportunities. So I think that yeah, you just want to get connected because it's not as simple as just going out and doing research, right? You need to um, get all kinds of training in the content areas about um, sexual attitudes and behaviors, as well as the research me methods themselves, and then get some on the ground training and going out and doing interviews and recruiting for surveys and uh, learning data analysis. So there's a lot that goes into it, but it can be a really rewarding career. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking to Indiana University's Debbie Herbenick about sex research. Debbie, I know, so I just, you know, to, for our listeners, I went to IU, did my PhD there. I, I've known Debbie for a long time. We actually sort of collaborated when I was teaching a sex in the news class um, several, several years ago. Uh, and, and I spent a lot of time at Kinsey as well as uh, uh, interacting with Debbie. And I know one thing that we've ta I've talked about a lot with you and I think with some of the Kinsey people is the fact that it is easier to get um, support for research that looks at sort of dysfunctions in sex rather than sort of the more pleasurable or um, less dysfunctional aspects of sex, right? So if you're looking at a problem, it's easier to make the sell and get sort of politician, political backing or funding than saying, we want to look at, right, how do people behave when they love someone when, it, when they're having sex, right? So do, is there still that sort of tension as far as sort of outside support ver, ver, uh, of more support for dysfunctions versus sort of, I don't know, functional is probably not the right healthy, word. Healthy, healthy, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, I think it, it really varies. I would, I agree that I think within our field, most people absolutely feel that way, um, that it's far easier to get um, funding for sort of problematic mm -hmm. aspects of sex. 
Um, I'm uh, so my main appointments in the IU School of Public Health, and we have this great group of sex researchers in public health. And um, I think I have always felt very fortunate to mm -hmm. be in a school that supports a very holistic look mm -hmm. at sex educate or at sex research and sex education and just sexuality in general. Um, so over the years, I've benefited even from in some internal grants within the school and the university to help me explore the things I want to explore. Um, I've personally done a lot of research funded by corporations and by startup technology companies. Um, so I've been really fortunate to just somehow, uh, you know, be contacted by or, or otherwise meet um, some individuals at these kinds of places that shared interests with me, right? So some of my research um, has been funded by companies that make sexual enhancement products like vibrators or lubricants or arousal creams, um, condoms. Um, and they had interest and I had interest and they lined up and then we, you know, we did some studies together. Um, you know, I think when people look at very large federal level funding, yeah, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that they are going to be more interested in addressing, you know, like health problems. Yeah. Um, so especially um, I think one of the especially for people interested in like in sexual and gender minorities, there's often been a real sense that the interest has mainly been in funding HIV related work. Yeah. No. And there's been a lot of a lot of work in recent years, a lot of progress actually within these, um, you know, these more federal levels at supporting research that gets away. Well, so that it's still funding the HIV work, but is also funding work that's around like, for example, stigma um, and, you know, and substance use. And um, and those still might seem like some problems and they are. But ultimately, people are trying to understand, like, how do you live? A lot of these researchers are really trying to understand, like, how do you live like a happy, satisfying life with friends and partners and family um, in the midst of some challenges? Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, when you're going through and starting to do this research, you're going through some kind of institutional review process. And I, was yes. just, I was just imagining <laughs> the adventures you must have with human subjects review boards. Well, I'm on the Human Subjects okay. Committee, <laughs> and I have to say, it is my most satisfying, um, like, faculty service I've ever done. Oh, outstanding. So I think, you know, at IU, again, this is a different place than most, um, and we really don't have the same, the same kinds of problems that I hear about with um, human subjects at other universities, because, again, there's more than 100 sexuality researchers here, whether they're studying birds or primates or humans. But so our our IRB staff is really used to seeing things about sex and they really focus just on the human subjects issues, just on the risks and benefits. And they're not getting sidetracked by the sex yeah. part. Okay. But what I hear from many, many colleagues and sometimes help them brainstorm through are ethical issues that come up at their IRB mm -hmm where their IRB is getting distracted away from the human subjects or risk benefits issues and instead saying, I don't think you should ask about, you know, masturbation or orgasm. And so there's a lot of redirection that needs to happen at those universities um, to get them to say, OK, well, what's the human subjects issue that you're concerned about? and then go with that rather than the sex piece. So you're right that at so many universities, and that's really reflecting, again, our cultural ignorance and our cultural shame to think that just asking about sex is gonna be a risk for those humans. I, I'm gonna switch gears just a little bit. You are involved in a lot of public outreach efforts. You were involved with the Kinsey Confidential podcast um, that uh, IU did for a while. You had the My Sex Professor blog. 
You've been on Oprah, I believe, right? Am I misremembering that? Not Oprah, but a bunch of other okay, shows. Okay, right, right. I thought it was Oprah, too. Um, and and you launched the Sex Salon in Bloomington. And so all of these, and have given TED Talks. Um, I mean, for me, given what you do, that feels terrifying <laughs> to be so public. Um, why why have you sort of embraced that aspect of, of your identity and, and role as a scholar? Oh, I'm so interesting. What's terrifying about that? Oh, I mean, just, you know, I don't, I mean, the idea of like, let's talk about sex in this big public event. I don't know. Just, <laughs> again, this is maybe the cultural, I don't want to talk about sex in public coming out here. But you're talking about sex on the podcast right now. I am. I am. Two, yeah, there are four we of are? us in this space. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Who's going to listen to this? But I don't have to see anybody's faces. <laughs> yeah, so it doesn't terrify me at all, but I also teach human sexuality. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, true. So, you know, part of my, my week, right, is to get up twice a week in front of, um, you know, 60, 80 or 100 undergraduates and talk about sex. And I've been doing that for 17 years. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I think it's it's not uncomfortable for me. Um, but there's a time in my life before I did this when it would have been excruciating for me to imagine doing that because I was also raised in a home and a family where we didn't talk about sex. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was a change. Yeah. But I, I love the public outreach. It's just really important to what I do. Yeah. I would say because there are so many scholars who are doing research, whether it's in this area or not, who are who seem very sort of scared to step outside the academy. Right. And sort of take that 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 research into a more public space facing space. And it seems like you've just really embraced that in a way that I think feels unusual in the academy. Yeah, I do think we're seeing more and more people do it these days, which is exciting. In fact, even our promotion and tenure guidelines and, you know, over the years uh, have evolved. Oh, wow. I was going to wonder about that. You know, spaces for, you know, sometimes people call it knowledge translation or public engagement in science. So Kinda I like think podcasts. that's really exciting thing um, that more universities do now and ours is one of them. So it counts for something, but certainly when I started it, um, I think my main fear at the time was that I was still in graduate school when I was doing a lot of these public things. And I was worried about um, like the professors taking me seriously. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, and I do remember one professor making kind of an obnoxious comment about it at, at one point, but he also was just somebody who was generally sort of petty, right? So, like, <laughs> like, you know, his issue and not and not mine. Um, but I also had some professors who were so encouraging. Um, I got my PhD in the Department of Applied Health Science, and I remember talking to her about it, and I was worried what people would think. Um, and she said, Debbie, she said, you know, you're getting your PhD in the Department of Applied Health Science. This is <laughs> applying the health sciences. This is exactly what you should be doing. Um, and I, I love that she supported me in that because it gave me a lot of confidence to just go out and do it. I, I was intrigued that, that to find out about things like a declaration of sexual rights that mm. the World Association for Sexual Health has been promoting. Can you talk about some of the things that might be part of a declaration of sexual rights? Oh, absolutely. You know, there's, gosh, what are there, like 14 of them? I can't, I can't remember. I should know because I teach about this. But there's like 12 or 14 of them. And, you know, and they range and they range from things like, um, you know, having like bodily autonomy, right, to decide like when you want to have sex, who you want to have sex with, um, things like, um, you know, having some agency around your reproduction, 
Um, so that can involve things like having access to condoms and other types of contraception. And also the ability to assert that you're going to use them and that a partner would respect that. Um, sexual rights are about being free from sexual violence or pressure or coercion. Um, they can include, um, you know, the, the opportunities to seek sexual fulfillment and pleasure, um, the rights to education. Um, so, you know, again, thinking that even at the youngest ages, we have human rights to have access to information about our bodies and about sexuality and about reproduction. So they're wide ranging. And I, yeah, the World Association of Sexual Health has done a great deal to further that. I, I have one final question for you uh, that our colleague Richard Campbell would normally ask. Um, and sort of, we haven't really talked much about media and sort of how media influence the way we understand and respond to sex and, and culturally. Um, what do you think, and, and I mean, certainly there's a lot of sensationalistic reporting on sex research, and anything to do with sex. What do you think journalists could do to better cover um, sexual behavior and sexual health and, and just sexual experiences um, to help sort of move us away from, I don't know, maybe these, again, like me not wanting to talk about sex in public, like just that idea that it feels like a taboo topic. Well, I think, I think a few things. Um, one thing I wish editors especially took responsibility for um, and then sort of shaped the culture of their journalists, their writers, if you will, um, would be that you only use experts for things you need an expert for. Mm. Um, and I wish more professors and sex educators and researchers did this too, like held the line. In other words, what we get a lot of calls for are things like, I literally got a call once years ago for asking for tips on how to have sex in unique places like on a canoe or in an igloo. That is nothing you need a researcher to weigh in on. Things like how do you uh, kiss somebody on the neck? How do you, um, like how should you blow air on somebody's neck? I mean, those are the questions that we get. And I think what that does is it really cheapens yes. expertise, right? But, but I mean, that is a regular type of request. And, you know, it is human nature that a lot of people do just want to see their name in print and they feel like that means something. So a lot of researchers and educators give in to that and give some quotes for that. Um, sometimes you can avoid that and still find your name is given a false quote. So oh, um, there, there are some quotes out there on the Internet that I've never said. And that's happened oh. to some colleagues, too. And they're hard to scrub off the Internet. So I think editors and writers need to hold that line. And people in our field need to do that, too. Um, I think also actually trying to fit in what really matters. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I find it very difficult to get journalists or editors to write about what we actually find matters a great deal to satisfaction um, is that intimacy, connection and vulnerability matter a lot. Nobody wants to write about that. They want to write about how you find the G spot. Yeah, they want to write. Um, again, yeah, how to blow air on somebody's neck. You know, they want these and they'll say, well, we need something servicey, right? We need like a tangible thing we can tell people to do. Um, but that means that we miss out actually on telling people the most important things that like research for decades has found measures, you know, matters to pleasure and satisfaction. Um, more people could employ fact checkers, you know, and <laughs> some, sometimes I actually get called 
to at the last minute from a magazine where they'll say, oh, we, we found out in fact check that somebody's PhD is a fake one um, and we need to scrub their comments from this. Do you have something you can add to this section of the story? Because we we got too far down the path with somebody who wasn't really real. Oh, my, oh my gosh. Uh, so there's a lot more of us could be doing and also not, you know, I understand some publications have the, like a silly bent to them and that's fine. But yeah, if we were like a little less silly and more sincere about sex and sincere doesn't have to be boring, right? But just genuine and sincere, I think that would go a long way to helping us all feel more comfortable. I, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm very impressed with your ability to communicate. I mean, I've, you know, in watching some of your TED talks, I mean, anybody that talks that, that ties a bed to a tree house in terms of an, an, an image, in terms of an analogy, I thought that was... <laughs> That was great. So, so you know, and by the way, for the listeners, that's not meaning putting a bed in a treehouse. But, but so, can you talk a little bit about about that analogy and and what what you were using to highlight, as with that? Yeah, and I think that I think that year's TEDx Bloomington was focused on the wisdom of play. I think was the theme name. So I really needed to find something around play. Um, yeah. And so for me, I just kind of kept coming back to like these early experiences, not sexual experiences, just play experiences around tree houses and creating these, you know, these other worlds um, for yourself. So I ended up yeah, creating that talk um, and connecting sex to play and exploration and adventure and openness. Well, Debbie, that's all the time we have for this episode. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Debbie. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.